Hi, my name is Buck Woody. I'm an applied data scientist at Microsoft. Been in the industry for many, 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 many years, more than I sometimes care to count, <laughs> over 40 years. What we'll talk about probably today is a little bit more around the history and some futures, things mm -hmm. that we're doing in the future maybe. And then maybe some of the platform stuff that Microsoft's got going, but I don't want to turn this into some sort of marketing thing. I can just kind of explain where we are. And the other side we can talk a little bit more about, if you like, is this idea of data and mm -hmm. it being the root of data science. I think a lot about the bonsai tree, oddly enough. Bonsai tree? Yeah. You know, the little miniature trees in Japan and China. That oh, they, yeah, yeah, those yeah, little yeah. tiny trees. Yeah. So there's very little soil. My aunt is Japanese, and uh -huh. so I learned a lot about this stuff. There's very little soil, and so the number one tool in bonsai is often assumed to be the scissors, right? You cut okay. the tree away to make it look like a tree, even sense. though it's small. And so we think a lot about the scissors are the most important thing. Interestingly, the last thing they let you touch when you're learning bonsai, which takes a long time, oddly enough, is the watering can. Hmm. And the watering can, you can easily easily over and underwater the tree because mm -hmm. there's so little soil. And so it's the very last thing they let you mess with. And it's called the life of the tree is in the watering can. Hmm. You have a special can and the whole nine yards. The interesting thing is for me in data science, and when I say data science, by the way, I know that's an older umbrella term that's sure. fallen out of vogue. I still use it to mean ML, AI, BI, all of the advanced data analysis. To me, the data discipline, the, the rigor around making sure that you've got the right spread, you've got the right amount, you've got the right representation, all the typical statistics mm -hmm. things we learned in college, that's the watering can. Because if you think about it, I can get a very elegant algorithm, I can get a very powerful platform and computer and all that, and I can get a lot of people on the problem, and I can get a really cool model, and mm -hmm. I can get really cool systems to project the model and I can check everything. But if the base data it's built on is wrong, right. it's, it's, it's pointless. Yeah. Right? It's absolutely pointless. Yeah. So that implies that in a lot of ways, the first step for any data scientist, I don't know if this is some big secret, but it's yeah. go look at the data, <laughs> figure out what do you have. Yeah. What are some common steps you see in practice that people do to make that sort of assessment? Yeah, and that brings up another point, mm -hmm. this idea that I'm an applied data scientist. Yeah, I get yeah. asked that a lot. You know, what's an applied data scientist? So there's people that develop algorithms at Microsoft, the brainiacs from the planet Tron. You know, we <laughs> hire the guys from Stanford and MIT and the ladies that know all this stuff. And that's wonderful. They develop the algorithms. And I tend to work in the industries. I've traveled around the world in the past few months uh, teaching uh, classes on how to use our platform, Microsoft's platform, specifically SQL Server lately, mm -hmm. which has got Spark and all kinds of things in it now, how to do that with our stuff, but the data science part. And I actually look at how people are using our stuff. So to answer your question, the main thing I think about here is simply looking at the data, just looking at it mm -hmm. and asking a lot of questions. Where did I get this? And so I'll ask a company, they say they want to do some financial projections. Okay, where's your financial-based data? And I may go after confounding factors, and I may go after other data sets, even weather or something like that, just to meld together to see what's corollary and so on. And they'll say, oh, it's right here. And I'll go back to that and say, how do you know it's here? An interesting example, it was the one company I was working with, we were doing some predictions around, and again, the predictions now are quite pedantic. They're boring. They wanted to do some preventative and, and predictive maintenance on their air conditioning units. Mm -hmm. These particular shop floor machines 
needed to be kept at a certain temperature, higher than what we would be comfortable at, but the machines themselves couldn't get super hot. So they had air conditioning for the whole building, and these units they wanted to make sure wouldn't fail. And so they just wanted to get basically end of life and preventative and predictive and all that. Sure. So a really simple data set, really just a logistic regression and you're done. But as I started looking at the data, I saw some really interesting stuff. And I literally just put it into R and did a five num sum and started looking at the typical things you do. And I noticed that my predictions were wildly off. They were like 50% good. Like half the time, my predictions were working pretty well. And half the time, they, like 50%. And I'm like, that is just... Is it classification or regression? Well, this is just a regression. Uh-huh. But it was interesting that they were, this bucketization of how good it was performing was working really well half the time, which hmm. makes no sense. Why would that be? So I, I went all the way back to the base data and took a look at the data. And I said, where are we getting you know, the, the temperatures? They had a temperature sensor in the machine. Uh-huh. And it reported every 60 seconds. And I would get these numbers and I would just, you know, pop them in. I was like, what's going on that this is not happening? So I went all the way back and I looked at the, the set and the set looked okay. And I looked at the actual individual machines like, okay, something's off. And what I found out was this. When I asked them, I said, where did this data come from? There's a little sensor and mm-hmm. there's a little computer in there and it reports. How does it report? I said, can I have the manual to this thing? Mm-hmm. So they gave me the manual and they well, gave me two manuals. Tell me and about these manuals, though. Is this uh, like an old like three-wing binder? Yeah, or what yeah, you... like the spec from uh-huh. the machine that the shop floor had. Very technical, then, I would imagine. Oh, yeah, yeah. all the schematics. I didn't understand any of that, but I was just looking for that sensor reporting thing. How gotcha. did they get that? Yeah. And they gave me two manuals. Okay. And I said, well, no, I want the manual for the machine that's doing They said, oh, well, we have two different kinds of machines. <laughs> uh-oh, uh-oh. Well, it turns out one generation was older. And these are buildings from all over the world. This is big sure. data. And so I said, what's the deal here with some of them being older? And I looked, and in the, this is hilarious, in the older machines, they only report every 60 minutes. Uh Well, since the data was coming in every minute, every 60 seconds on the newer machines, the technician simply repeated it 10 times. He just, ah. he just kept sending in the data multiple times, but he was reporting the same number. Like a cached value. Well, just, to, you know, it was uh, 10 degrees Celsius, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 20, mm-hmm. 20, 20. Whereas the other one was going 10, 11, 12, 10, 11, 9, yeah, 11, yeah. 12, right? And so to me, so now my numbers were way off because it looked as if this machine ran in this very sawtooth pattern. Right, right. When in fact, it, was, it should have been running in this, you know, modular fashion. And so I guess the, the point is, when I did that and then accounted for that and smoothed everything, okay, well, then I'll just do every 60 minutes, which was fine. Mm-hmm. Now the predictions worked the way it should work every time. I had to go all the way back to the manual of the machine that was reporting <laughs> the data. And no one knew to ask that question, Yeah. right? The shop floor guy said, where's the data? And he said, here's the data. And the manager's like, did you talk to Bill on the shop floor? Because he's got the data. And so everybody thought they were doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. So it takes a domain expert in the predictions, not right. the machines. Yeah, yeah. And it takes an expert in the machines and not the prediction to get the prediction right. Yeah, yeah. Very good example. Yeah, yeah. So that's the thing I see with this, the applied data science, it's a little different than coming up with the algorithm, which that's great. I love those guys, but I spend my time actually working with customers and the the use cases are like the 
predictive maintenance. That's a big one. Anomaly detection is probably uh-huh. the biggest thing I do. Is some oh, really? form? Oh, sure, some form of anomaly detection with banks and finance and insurance. That's you know pretty obvious that that, that, that would sense. be the case. But even on others, like we worked with a gaming company recently, they just wanted to catch fraud in the games, the online games. It's a big deal. People get very upset if they think the games are unfair or rigged. Mm -hmm. So they're looking for people that have figured out ways to to game the game, if you will. (laughs) And to do that, you're talking a lot of data that they collect. Every click, every mouse movement, everything. And they wanted to be able to check, is this guy cheating? Is this lady cheating? That sort of thing. Yeah. So you were mentioning all the tutoring you've done around the world. Yeah. Are you seeing that regionally there are different trends about things people should be building up more in their portfolio of tools that they haven't or different types of problems or is data science kind of the same everywhere? No, it's definitely not the same everywhere. Obviously, the algorithms and the stats parts are the, you know, the the technology is largely the same. Mm -hmm. I'm finding the preparation and the platforms are what's wildly divergent Mm. around the world. Some of that will be around what vendor has penetrated that market. Mm -hmm. In certain regions of the world, Amazon's really big, and others, Microsoft's really big, and Mm -hmm. others, Google's really big, and others, it's pure open source and that sort of thing, build your own. And others have regional players that have penetrated. So they'll have a platform of choice. And if you think about it, when you learn a language like English or Spanish or German, you think in a certain pattern because of the way your verbs and nouns are arranged, that's kind of been proven. So when you learn a dialect, like if you grew up on Spark or R or Python, Mm -hmm you will tend to think of your solutions in those terms first. And so when I go to these regions, the first thing I ask is, what's your love language? What do you, what do mm-hmm. you program in? And they'll say, oh, Scala. Okay, okay, now I know what to think about. It's all you know, redundant data sets, right? They'll say, no, I'm a R person. I'm thinking, okay, functional. They understand functional programming. And then, no, I'm Python, so they're object-oriented and, and that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. those are gross generalizations, by the way. I know that sure, sure. you can do objects in R, don't write the podcast and <laughs> yell. <laughs> I know you can do functional in Python. Uh-huh. But in general, this is the way people think. So I do see that, those differences. As far as what people need to do, the two big ones right now have nothing to do with data science per se, but it's Kubernetes and containers. Mm-hmm. Data scientists need to be very familiar. Like you have uh, environments in Python and R, You need your conda or whatever to do your environments. That same thing needs to transport to the data science team to make sure the infrastructure teams know to do the containers and Kubernetes well. Mm -hmm. That's another watering can, unfortunately, within the process that you don't always control. You'll do something that works very well. You birth it out to the field and they've misconfigured their storage in Kubernetes. It takes forever for anything to happen. And they're like, that must be your fault. Mm -hmm. It's not. It's just misconfigured. Makes sense. A former guest of the podcast, this was a while ago, she tweeted something I thought was hilarious. She says, every day that goes by is another day I come closer to Googling what the heck Kubernetes is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think what I do when I teach, and I teach data scientists containers and Kubernetes, and I do that in like a four-minute quick overview, right? Mm -hmm. Enough to know the terms and understand what's going on. We all know physical computers, Mm -hmm. right? And they got four big components within them. CPU, memory, networking, and disk. That's been Mm -hmm. around since I've been around, right? So these are the things that are inside a computer. But when we think about scaling out things like Hadoop Mm -hmm. or Spark, those need lots and lots of computers. They've renamed them nodes so -hmm. we can charge people more money. Because if you you change the names to things and add more syllables, you can actually make more money. That's the secret for data science. (laughs) So a projection is just a prediction, right? But we take the computer itself now, and we need to be able to have deploy thousands of these. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard to do physically. So, of course, we now know about 
virtualization. And maybe we don't. And the way that works is there's a thing called a hypervisor, which is a layer that runs above the operating system. And that represents a BIOS, a basic input-output system that has the CPU, memory, disk, and networking in it, and a hard drive, which is just a file on your computer. So now you look like you've got a computer on a computer, but you're carving up your physical environment, the CPU, disk, network, and, and memory, and you are representing that, and then you reinstall an entire operating system, Windows or Linux or whatever, which has the ability to carry a mouse and a screen and virus protection and all these things you really don't need just to run, say, Python 3.5, maybe a MySQL database, and some code. Mm -hmm. You're doing all of that just to run those three things. So that's very inefficient. And as you do these things and you do more and more of them, you do now have a way to transport lots of these and store lots of these on one computer. So you've got your scale, but it's inefficient scale. So what we do is there's a new thing out uh, for the containers, not very new, really. We have a container runtime. And the main one, the sort of the big dog in the game is, is Docker, or little mm -hmm. d Docker. There's Docker Big D, which is the company that runs these things. And then there's little d Docker, which is the runtime. And what it does is very interesting. You set up a text file. Just, uh, of course, everything's a YAML file these days, right? Mm -hmm. Everything's yet another markup language yep. file. And you describe, I would like Python 3.5 running. I'd like MySQL running. And I'd like this code. It's just a file. And then you tell Docker, okay, uh, compose that into something called an image which is a gathered up version of Python mm -hmm. and MySQL runtimes and the code you asked for. And that's called an image. So that's just a binary representation, but it's very small. Mm -hmm. And then you tell Docker, run that. And that then becomes a container. So we go from the description of a container to the image of a container to a container, which is a running thing of those. The interesting thing now is I'm not representing the CPU memory networking and disk. I'm simply using the one that's already on the host. But it's a completely isolated environment. So if you're thinking about Conda or some other uh, or an R mm -hmm. ENV statement or something like that, mm -hmm. this is the same thing except for a whole computer, which is very nice. Yeah. Now, because I have these files, I can simply say I want a thousand of those. And you've got them. Yeah. And they're running. And it's even more interesting, if the Python is the same or, or the code is the same that's running, Docker's smart enough just to share that so it doesn't actually reload another version of Python unless it's a different version or something. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of nice. Yeah. The problem is when things are easy to do, we do a lot of it. Yeah. Like, right? There's cake in the break room, we go eat cake because there's <laughs> right. cake in the break room, right? Now we have thousands of these things running Spark nodes or whatever running around. And we also have a problem with storage mm -hmm. because it's not persistent. You can make it persistent, but by default, it isn't. So Kubernetes comes along, which was the original Borg system from Google, and then they open-sourced it under the name Kubernetes, which means pilot or navigator in Greek. Mm. And that was too long, so they shortened that to K8S, mm -hmm. which I don't think is any easier to say than Kubernetes. <laughs> and also, if you wanted a short name, why didn't you name it a short name to begin with? Anyway, so Kubernetes then is simply another YAML file and another engine, and what it does is this. On something called a node, which can be a physical computer or a virtual PC, it has the Docker runtime, and then it has a couple of services that it runs. One deals with networking, and one deals with I'm part of a cluster. Mm -hmm. And then there's this master node, a computer or service, that's running that makes sure all of these things happen. So you simply, in your YAML file, say, I want these things running, these nodes, and you can group them together into something called a pod, a P-O-D, pod. Mm -hmm. And you can say, I want three copies of my app running, and it handles that. It handles it by simply, if one goes down, starts another one up. 
it handles that by if the whole node goes down, it simply fires it up somewhere else. It does all the work for you and wrangles everything. Mm -hmm. And the other thing it does is it abstracts the hardware for the storage away into something called a persistent or volume, just a volume or a persistent volume. And it gives you a claim that goes to the pod that's kind of like a wire, a software wire, if you will. It says this pod can use that storage, Mm -hmm. that volume. Mm -hmm. And so if the pod disappears and it wakes up somewhere else, its claim goes with it because it's in the pod and it reconnects and off you go. Gotcha. Now you yeah. can have databases and Spark and Hadoop and all of those things. And SQL Server from Microsoft now even runs on Kubernetes in a pod in a container. Mm-hmm. So that's the way that works. So that's the four minute overview of, of sort of how Kubernetes is. And usually that's enough knowing those terms. The interesting thing to me about that is take a language like SQL. Inside SQL, we declare what we want. It's a declarative programming language. Mm-hmm. And in this declarative programming language, I say uh, select star from my table, right? That's not really what happens. Underneath, there is a F open, F lock, stream, mem alloc, right? There's all kind of C code running. There's things that talk to kernels and so on. Yeah. And I don't do any of that. Mm-hmm. I simply declare, I want this from a table, Then there's a thing called a parser and an algebraizer and a cost-based optimizer that figures out how to do that. I just say what I want. It figures out how to do Mm -hmm. what I want. If you think about that as a declarative language for data, then you can think about containers as being a declarative language for almost a computer. Ah, I like that analogy, yeah. Yeah, so now I can say in my YAML file, I want Python 3.5, I want MySQL, and I want my code. Go figure that out. Mm -hmm. And it does that. It does exactly that. And then if you think about that, then Kubernetes, which is yet another YAML file and yet another runtime, mm-hmm. is the orchestration for all of those. It's kind of your, air quotes, platform or network, if you will. It's a dangerous thing to say, but it's kind of like that. And so I have a declarative environment now. So I have a declarative programming language that can run on a declarative computer, if you will, and a declarative network, if you will. Uh, that's stunning. <laughs> yeah. So now I can simply, and this is kind of, this is a lot of ramifications. One of those is I can check in my data science and predictive environment into source control. Yeah. Because it's a text file. Mm-hmm. And I could technically roll back. Version, and I can roll share, forward, everything. version everything, yeah. right? So now when I need to version my model, I can version not just my model, but my Python environment, my computer, and my network it was running on. That's the ultimate repeatability, right? So, Absolutely. Yeah. I have seen a lot of different ways organizations will set up their data science group. Mm-hmm. I know data scientists that do work on Kubernetes a little bit. Yeah. Others who, like my reference earlier, don't really know what that is, but they don't have to. Don't they, care, yeah. they can finish because either they created or someone handed them a good Docker container. Mm-hmm. And I personally don't think there's a right or a wrong answer to mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Different teams, different professionals. But do you see any common patterns of success? I do a great deal. So we go back to the business intelligence days back mm-hmm. in the 80s when business intelligence was fresh and new. And we would have these very specialized people who did very specialized parts of business intelligence stand up in a team, you'd plan for three or four months a thing, and then you'd roll it out on a very proprietary platform that only some people knew how to use. And then you had to pre-chew everything and give that to your users in some sort of a report. By the time you finished, by the way, your BI project, the concern had moved on and and no one ever actually (laughs) used it. But, But that's kind of where we are maybe five, six years ago in data science, mm-hmm. the data scientist sat back in her office with an overpowered R or Python machine, and she would suck all of the very secure, very sensitive data out of the data center, and she would put it on this system, and she'd pull in weather data and whatever else economic data that she needed to do, and she would 
spend 99% of her time, you know, turning zeros into O's or O's into zeros. And then she would do an, a model and an algorithm and she would experiment. Maybe she'd version it. Maybe she didn't. Maybe she just tried over and over. And when she was done, she would walk out with two tablets, uh, probably iPads, and say, thus saith the data, right? And mm-hmm. everybody, ooh. And so she was kind of alone. And maybe she had someone working with her doing exactly the same thing, but just with a different project. Fast forward to now and people are like, why am I paying a PhD to turn O's into zeros? That's <laughs> right, really, yeah. uh, that seems wasteful. And so we had this term called data engineer come out. Interestingly enough, uh, we own LinkedIn as well, as you know, at mm-hmm. Microsoft. One of the things we've found is now data engineering is the most sought after for job title taking over from data scientists. Interesting. Yeah. And the reason why is this. We call a a data engineer at Microsoft everything but the algorithm. Uh uh So all of the front-end work that we do, and then maybe the app writing and the iPhone code and the web code or whatever to view and get the score back, it shouldn't be done by a data scientist per se. So we invented something called the Team Data Science Process. And I'm going to, I'll I'll say the URL. It's very short. Yes, please, yeah. A-K-A dot M-S. That's our short URL. Mm -hmm. A-K-A dot M-S forward slash T- D-S-P, Team Data Science Process. If you go to that, we did this thing and we shared it with a few folks. A lot of places around the world are using it, not just us. Mm-hmm. It's, it's agnostic to the tech, but it defines out very clearly a team structure for a data science team. Mm. And we've got project plans and we've got job descriptions and we've got their guides. They're not dictates, obviously, but we find these to work out very well with who does what. It folds into DevOps, or I guess now that's being called MLOps or AIOps, but it's just all DevOps. Mm -hmm. And essentially it means this, look left. And what that means is often the person that gets a twinkle in their eye about, I want a certain thing to be done, then gets that all fully formed, goes to a data scientist and says, okay, do this. And then the developers start working. And then finally this is thrown on somebody's lap and they're like, well, where are we going to put this? And the Mm -hmm. data center finds out. And they're like, well, how are we going to expose this? And the developer finds out and so on. So this idea of of the team data science process says that you should probably bring in the data scientist when you're thinking about your thing. Yeah. Because most companies are used to BI projects. And in BI projects, I can write one cube and I can answer a lot of questions. Sure. You know, I get one dimension and a bunch of facts and I can answer a bunch of questions out of that. So they're used to that now. Well, they bring in the data scientist and they say, I want to know this and this and this, and this. And they don't realize that those are that's four projects. Mm-hmm. I cannot answer a clustering question with a regression algorithm. So if I'm going to do one of how many of these are there, and the other of which things do these belong to, those are two different data sets. They're two different sets of experiment runs, all mm-hmm. of that. And they don't know that. So if they were bringing the data scientist early, they'd find that out and find out what they can do. And if the data scientist would think about, okay, where's this going to run? and they find out perhaps they're using Kubernetes or not in their organization. And if the IT folks were to find out, oh, we need to make sure we check this in and talk to the developer, and if the developer were to talk to the tester, and if the tester were to talk to the deployment person, then all this would go much better. So this team data science process, I find when I teach it, and I teach it around the world, Mm -hmm. works very well, even in small teams. Like multiple people can, or multiple hats can be worn by the same person, or multiple people can wear the same hat. But it's got a nice fold in that way. There are still shops. We've got a data scientist and they are a one-stop shop. Mm -hmm. But even so, I think thinking about a process in this way, data discovery and classification, 
business understanding, all these phases we've laid out. There's just six phases. Yeah. And the proper way to do the modeling and the experiment and so on. I think if they were to follow that, their day would be less hectic and frantic. As data scientists, I think most of us are fairly organized people. We kind of gravitate towards that. Mm -hmm. So we probably come up with our own methodology. But if you have one that's canned, that works well, I think you'll find it to make your day quicker and easier. Absolutely. As you'd mentioned, maybe a smaller organization, someone's going to wear a lot of hats. You need maybe a seasoned professional who can play all those roles. As a company grows, Mm -hmm. tends to specialize, although not always. Mm -hmm. How have you seen larger organizations adopt the plan? Yeah, so we do a lot of work with telling them, do you know you have a DBA team? Do you know you have a a SQL Server or Oracle team? And they're Uh like, well, yeah, I guess. And I'm like, are you aware that their life's blood is dealing with data, Mm -hmm. like in all of its forms, not just SQL statements. They actually know how to do transforms. They have some amazing tools. I showed, (laughs) I was recently out of the country and I showed a a data scientist, SQL Server Integration Services, SSIS. Just this graphical tool, you can drag things around. We needed to do some data munging real quick. Mm -hmm. And so he opened his R and started like pulling out his box of algorithms. And I started dragging things and I was done in like seconds. And he looked at me, he goes, what is this? I said, well, it's just SSIS. It's no big deal. And he goes, what, what wizardry is this? <laughs> you know, <laughs> he was as amazed at the tools that DBA uses as the DBAs are with the algorithms that the data scientist uses. Reminds me of a story. I worked at NASA. I worked with one of the scientists who landed one of the original cameras on the moon that we mm-hmm. landed before we did the moon shots. Uh-huh to take pictures because they didn't know what was up there. Yeah. So they landed the small round camera on the moon and then it stood itself up and would take pictures. But as the sun would come around to the side where the camera was turning, they had to turn it away because it would melt the film inside. So they would turn away and then it would be dark for a while. And then when the sun would, would do the other part of the thing, they would turn it back on and you'd see the moon. And from time to time, they would point it at the earth so they could get a reference frame. So back in the day at NASA where I worked, had these large glass rooms, and you still wore a lab coat. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, when you worked on the mainframes, you still wore a lab coat, tie, nice. the whole nine yards, white shirt. So you know, I was talking to this doctor friend of mine who worked in the labs at that time. While we were there, some of the cast of Star Trek, the original Star Trek, used to come visit NASA all the time uh-huh. uh, for photo ops and things like that. And I asked him, I said, oh, I guess uh, James Doohan's going to be here today, Scotty. And he said, yeah, I said, I met one of those guys once. I said, tell me about it. And he said, it was interesting at dinner, which was three in the morning because they were doing the moonshot stuff. So they Mm. worked the night shift. They would go to the break room and they would watch a rerun of this show that was just out in the 60s called Star Trek. (laughs) And they would debate, is that possible? Because keep in mind, when the original Star Trek ran, even automatic doors weren't real. There was Mm. no such thing. They Mm. had a person back there pulling the door open and making the noise because there was no such thing as an automatic door. That's how old that is. And so they would watch all the scientists would sit there on their break and debate. Well, I don't think you can do that because of this physics thing or whatever. So he went back to work and people would walk around the glass room all the time, you know, staring. They would bring people. They just got used to it. Mm -hmm. So he's taking down some notes and he turns his camera back on and it flickers to life and you can see Earth. And he hears a voice behind him that says, fascinating. And he's like, that sounds familiar. He turned around. It's Leonard Nimoy, who was being given a tour Uh of the whole thing. And so he found it ironic that while he was downstairs watching Leonard Nimoy's work and saying, fascinating, that Leonard Nimoy was watching his work. (laughs) And and I guess what I, that was a long story for my point being that 
when I go to these shops, I try to let them know you've got people that could fold into the data science team. Yeah. And we run into a couple of cultural mm-hmm. things. A lot of DBAs think they need to become data scientists. That's the next step. They don't realize mm. they already have a valuable skill right, and right. it's needed. And a lot of data scientists can be a little territorial. They will tell themselves they're territorial for a good reason. I don't want anybody in here just kind of messing with things because they don't know what they're doing. Uh-huh. And they could be right. Could be. But there's a little territory going over there because yeah. everybody sees the man behind the curtain. They may think, okay, he or she doesn't really do anything that awesome. And I'm like, well, I, I don't think you're in danger of losing your job. So right. I, and who of us hasn't seen that whole territorial attitude in tech? Yeah. Right? We've all seen that. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm curious, how does NASA operate compared to your traditional organization from a data standpoint? Yeah, it's been a long time since I was at NASA. Mm-hmm. Uh, this would be 93, the last time I worked at NASA. So a long time ago, but at the time, we had IBM mainframe. There was just this new thing out coming out called OS2. So I used that. Everything was very, very, very centralized. And at the time, NASA was quite process-oriented, meaning physical process. So we did something called the Shuttle Processing and Data Management System, SPDMS. That's what I worked on, where we were digitizing physical processes. So we're taking papers. It's about a million signatures that were needed to get a shuttle off the ground. Mm -hmm. And all that was backed by paperwork. So we were busy digitizing those processes onto clicks and, and enters, and I guess not clicks at that time, but enters, <laughs> more enters on green screens. And I'm talking everything from design. I mean, these, you're going to space. It's not something you do sort of a lot. Mm-hmm. So the, the data processing was more important than, say, worrying about a particular algorithm or worried about efficient storage or speed. It was more around the process. And there was some resistance as well to that, which became interesting because you can hide in paperwork and you can't always hide. Mm -hmm. in digital. And so we actually faced some pushback. There's a lot of unions and things that work Mm -hmm. at NASA or for NASA. A lot of them didn't want to be tracked. So this was very interesting at the time. It was a fascinating place to work. The interesting thing is the shuttle itself, the orbiter, not exactly rocket science. Uh, it was actually, <laughs> You're going to yeah. have to sell me on that. <laughs> yeah. It was actually, the airframe was built by Lockheed at the time mm-hmm. as aluminum. The panels were built by somebody else, Morton Thiokol, I think, and a few other places. And these were heat-resistant tiles that were sort of glued, in a way, onto mm-hmm. this frame. So it's like an airplane. You glued stuff to the outside. And inside the cockpit, it's not heads-up displays and computers. Everything it was very old tech. Mm-hmm. Everything was triple redundant. Mm-hmm. And most of it was mechanical switches that could be easily replaced with gloves on. Mm-hmm. So when you get into the orbiter, now when I went and worked in it a couple of times, there was a four-bit computer in the, there were two four-bit redundant computers that were driving the orbiter. You could make use of four bits. Four bits, that's okay. it, that's it, yeah. This is a day when you did have, you know, 486s, this is the 386, 486 Intel chip time frame. Gotcha. So, you know, we had more than four bits to work with, but not in the shuttle. No, sir. Mm. It had to be triple redundant, had to be flying a long time. This is people's lives. So you did not want things that were not thoroughly, thoroughly tested. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of the weather monitoring stations I worked on one time, most of your listeners will not even know what this is, but go look this up. Used a Commodore PET, P-E-T computer. Go look that up sometime and you'll, will, be, yeah. you'll be amazed that that could be used for anything, even a garage door opener. <laughs> <laughs> but we monitored the weather with one of those kinds of systems. So 
We did some of our telemetry with the Amiga, Commodore Amiga computer. Yeah, yeah. yeah I worked I on Amiga that. for a little bit. We used that because it had much, much, much higher graphics than anything on the market at the time. Anything. Yeah, it was the leader in video editing. It really yeah. was. The video toasters back yep. in the day, most weather stations used those and that sort of thing. So we used those to analyze data that we would bring back from the orbiter. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. How interesting, the same systems that we're running a video toaster like yeah, this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's what we did. We were doing, essentially. I needed to be able to look at experiments. We had very, very, very small microscopes that could be digitized, but I needed something that could see 256 million colors. Yeah. And it could do that in a day when 16 colors was you know, groundbreaking, right. or 256 colors were groundbreaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So technology is changing a lot. I guess mm, that's always mm. been true. You're seeing a lot of different organizations. Do you have any good advice for younger professionals? What are the most important tools, technologies, things they should be learning and focusing on? I think computational basics are always going to be learn logic, learn the basics of data processing and so on. You're, you're never going to go wrong with that. So that'd be the first thing I'd say, get a really good base in that. The second thing I'd recommend is a really high level of math, right? Mm-hmm. Stats and linear algebra. Yeah. No matter what, even if you're not going to be in data science, I would say that Stats and linear algebra are two tools that you'll use. You know, you're in school and you're always like, I'll never use this. Right. <laughs> and you actually will uh, yeah. if, you, if you want to. The third thing I'd recommend is to pick an industry or multiple industries. So become a domain expert mm-hmm. either in a particular vertical, healthcare, finance, something, or say, what are the patterns that are available to all of these? So I'll have a width rather than a depth in the application of the basic tech that I just learned. The fourth thing I'd focus on, and maybe perhaps the very first thing I'd focus on, is learning to learn. Mm -hmm. Understanding how to pick up knowledge and put it down. One of the things when I joined Microsoft about 15 years ago was the pace at which I have to learn something and then move on. Mm -hmm. And as a type A, like most of us are, that's jarring. Because I want to be an expert in something. I want to be, if you ask me, I can answer the nth of anything. That's what I want. But you don't have that kind of time. You pick up something, and you know, at the time we learn a language, you know, we learn C sharp or Java or whatever, and we're like, we become experts in that. What you really should do is fine, pick a language you like and stick with that. And everybody knows the best language ever is Pascal, but that's, we'll debate that <laughs> on another show. But pick a language you like, but while you're learning that language, figure out how you're learning that language. Are you a hands on learner? Or are you a visual learner for a particular thing? And then do that again and be ready to say, okay, fine, I'll pick up Java. I'll pick up JavaScript, I'll pick up Python, I'll pick up R, whatever I need to do, I'll figure it out. And if you can get over that mental hurdle of, hey, I can figure it out, you'll be okay. There's so much free training. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And when I was young, of course, this is dinosaur days, right? Back in the 60s and 70s, the only way you learned was school or the library. Mm -hmm. I was at the public library pretty much every day. And the reference librarian was my Google yeah, yeah. Was my Bing, was my whatever, right? This was how I learned. I would ask her or him, how do I find more information on this? And it was hours and hours and hours of study that I can now get pre-chewed for me in seconds. Right. I find it stunning that people don't do that. And the only thing I can think of is that there's just the lack of focused time. Mm-hmm. There's so many things we can spend our time on now. We spend a little on all of them and we don't yeah. have depth that we need. And a lot of people will come to a conference or something like that simply to be away from work and only focus on one thing. Yeah. And fortunately, they bring their phones and completely blow that paradigm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
Well, before asking a wind-down question, I always like to ask people, is there anything you think I should have asked you that I didn't? Oh, that's interesting. Let me think about that for a moment. I think the question is, uh, where's AI going? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. People always ask me this. We'll have these initial briefs. I'm the Microsoft guy. I'm coming from corporate Microsoft, and I'm in South Africa, and I'm talking to the leader of a bank or something. They've got the whole C-level there in front of me, CEO and CIO. Where's AI going? Yeah. And I always tell people it's going away. No one says anymore, we've got computers at our company. We're a technology company. Yeah, and, and you know, everybody would look at you if you said, you know what, we have computers at our company. That's how advanced we are. You'd be like, uh, everybody has computers at their yeah. company. You don't talk about it anymore. Right, right. But at one point, it was. You'd put sure. E dash something in front of your name or I dash something. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not talking about the Apple I. I'm talking about I for information or internet. Yeah, you yeah. would brag that you're coming. Do you remember cloud this or that, right? Mm-hmm. Cloud drives and cloud. Nobody says that anymore. Yeah. It's just computing. Yep. It's just computing, right? You'll see that as well. Now, I think in AI, it's just going to go away, which is both a, a blessing and a curse. Mm-hmm. So as we have more and more pre-built AI, we call it at Microsoft, we've got several cognitive services, mm-hmm. predictive APIs you can just call. You can send it a picture and say, what is that? And it will send you back. It's a dog in a green field next to blue flowers. And I'm 90% sure of that, yeah. right? You don't have to be a data scientist to use that. Even inside SQL Server, you can make a query call the prediction algorithm and store that result back in the cell. Very neat. And you can do text analysis. We built tons of these things, these pre-built AIs. I think you'll see more of that. The danger is we may trust it too much Mm. and not know the methodology. So I'll give you another link that I'd really like people to know. It's aka.ms again, Mm -hmm. forward slash AI dash ethics, E-T-H-I-C-S, AI dash ethics, It's the ethical principles we adhere to at Microsoft. There's just four or five main principles we adhere to. It's a website, very easy. There's a free book at the end. It's even narrated if you'd like to hear it instead of read it. It's free, obviously. I think things need to be transparent. They need to be understandable and so on as much as possible. I think it's incumbent upon us in the data science field to know that we have that watering can. We need to be extraordinarily careful about what we tell people because they believe us. If the little iPhone tells us to do something, we do it, and we drive blindly into a lake. And that can be both figurative and literal. And so I think AI is going away, but it's not going away. It's just going to bake into everything. It's going ubiquitous. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you think, if you use Excel Mm -hmm. and use a a product called Flash Fill, where you type in Buck Woody, and then next to it, you type B dot W dot in uppercase. And then you say Flash Fill. It'll take all the other names and give you their initials. Very interesting. Yeah, Flashville. Or you could say North Dakota, and then you put little n, little d, or you put north, just the first word, mm-hmm. and you Flashville. It'll find Florida and California and so on. This Flashville is actually using PROSE, P-R-O-S-E, some artificial intelligence from Microsoft Research to do Flashville in Excel. And no one would know, or we don't say, but that's air quotes, AI. Mm-hmm. We don't tell you that. It's just Flashville. So it's just going to disappear into products like that. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, no one brags, hey, this product was written in an object-oriented fashion <laughs> exactly. or with this language. Now written with functional programming. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't really do that. Well, Buck, thank you so much for your time. It's where, been great. Where can people follow you online? The easiest way is LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. I post all business stuff there. I'm also on Facebook and that's for friends and family. Sure. And then Twitter is Stream of Consciousness. I'm Buckwoody MSFT. 
It's not technical. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. I tell a lot of random jokes, all that. So if you want to follow me there, that's fine, but it's at your own risk. If you, <laughs> if you want to maintain a decent impression of me, stay on LinkedIn. We also have a full set of workshops where we publish some things. So aka.ms forward slash SQL workshops, S-Q-L-W-O-R-K-S-H-O-P-S, SQL workshops. We've got things like doing data science on SQL and, and yeah. that sort of thing. Who's that aimed at? What's the best audience to pick up that link? Data professionals. Mm-hmm. Data professionals, yeah. At what point in their career? Any point, yeah. really. There's no good or bad time to do those things. I never find that there's useless knowledge. I love learning. It's one of the reasons I come to conferences like Ignite as mm-hmm. opposed to just going to Open Data Science or Strata or something right, like right. that. I go to those. Yep. I come to ones like this because there's people I don't normally talk to and there's technologies. You know, I'm not going to learn Active Directory, but I go sit right. in a session just to say, oh, wow, that's kind of, I didn't know you could do that. Yeah. That sort of thing. Or I'll go into office and learn something else about PowerPoint or whatever that I didn't know was there. For instance, PowerPoint. We have a presentation coach you can download for free. You turn it on, you start doing your presentation in PowerPoint with your mic on, and it critiques you. Really? You're saying, um, too much, don't use his or her, that's not inclusive, stand a little closer, you're reading your slides, all that. And that's from Microsoft Research, and it's AI. Well, I'm going to have to language. try that out. I yeah, didn't know about presentation that. coach. Just type in PowerPoint presentation coach Microsoft and in a search browser, and you'll get a free product that we've got. That's AI, and I didn't know that was there. Yeah. And I work in, in Microsoft, <laughs> and I work in research, and I didn't know that was there. Yeah, yeah. Just stunning stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm excited to go try that. Awesome. Thanks, Kid Buck, for your time. All right. No worries. Thank you for having me. 